Hello, and welcome to another episode of Outlier Founders by Outlier Academy, where we decode what iconic founders and entrepreneurs have mastered, from how they built their companies to the frameworks and strategies they used and the lessons they learned along the way. I'm Daniel Scrivener, and on the show today, I'm joined by Justin Mayers. Justin is the founder of a number of companies, including Bone Broth Maker, Kettle and Fire, America's number one keto brand, Perfect Keto, and the non-alcoholic wine brand, Shirley Wines. Each of these companies alone does tens of millions of dollars in revenue each year. And on top of that, Justin is also a venture partner at Long Journey Ventures. In this episode, we decode how he's built and scaled multiple companies to tens of millions of dollars in revenue, including Kettle and Fire, Perfect Keto, and Shirley Wines including the framework he's used for all of his businesses, from how he picks trends to how he creates products and brands to own that trend and how he scales them, as well as everything he's learned from the highs and lows of his journey, from why consumer brands are cash management businesses to how he creates categories and brands to why he believes in hiring a financial leader within his companies as early as possible. You can find a searchable transcript of this episode as well as our episode guide with ways to dive deeper at outlieracademy.com slash 144. That's outlieracademy.com slash 144. Please enjoy my conversation with Justin Mayers. Justin, thank you so much for joining me on Outlier Academy as part of our Outlier Founder Series. Uh, I really appreciate the time. Thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. So I am so excited about this. You know, when I asked you if you would come on, I was uh, had my fingers crossed uh, because one, I'm a big fan of Kettle and Fire. It's been cool to see the number of companies you've started and just kind of the progression. Um, so we're going to cover a, a ton of ground here from talking about Kettle and Fire, Perfect Keto, Shirley. I want to get into your approach to building these companies, what you've learned. Uh, we have a ton of ground to cover. Where I want to start is for a quick sketch of your background, because, you know, I think the, the lead in here, you've got a newsletter called The Next. I'm just going to read something from for a second. Um, you know, and in the in the lead in, it says, in the last four years, I founded three health brands, Kettle and Fire, Perfect Keto, Shirley, which each do tens of millions in revenue. I've raised 20 million to build Kettle and Fire, gotten into 10,000 plus retail stores, bootstrap Perfect Keto, launched 80 plus SKUs, in super impressive list, and have a small portfolio of Shopify apps, um, you know, that I run on the side. Um, that's just in the last four years. So take us back earlier on and paint, you know, kind of connect the dots and help give us a sense of your journey. Yeah. So thanks so much for having me, first off. Um, so where, where, where should I start? How early? <laughs> <laughs> Man, I mean, wherever you think is an interesting moment in time. I don't know if there's anything formative in your youth. I know in college, you experimented with paleo that probably led to some of this. So whatever makes sense. <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I think that a lot of this stuff um, probably started where I grew up in DC. And then after I graduated high school in 2008, um, my family moved to rural Pennsylvania. So to like a really, really tiny t- town outside of Philadelphia. Uh, it's not great. <laughs> like I didn't really enjoy living there. And I didn't know anyone. I like knew literally no one for 100 miles or whatever. And so my first summer, like my first two summers after after college, I would come home and I would know literally no one. And so my summer after my senior, my freshman year, I basically came back and I didn't know anyone. I was working as a janitor at LA Fitness. I was also like a working construction, doing pool plastering. And I was just like pretty miserable, honestly. And so around, it was around that time that I first came across like the four hour work week, which was the uh, like very formative book for me, I would say. Uh, and that was the first thing that I read where I was like, entrepreneurship is a thing. Like I could just like try and build my own, you know, company. I could like make money on my own, on, on my own volition. And as someone who at that point in my life had been fired from like 13 jobs, like literally every job wow. I had. It's impressive. Would later, yeah, I know. And I later would get fired from LA Fitness and the pool plastering job. So I'd been fired from everything. And I was like, huh, maybe this is sort of an answer to my seeming inability to like really get excited and dive in and, and, you know, do stuff that I don't like for people that I don't really respect. And so that's when I started working on my first company. Uh, I started my first company called, it was called roommate fit. Uh, when I was in college, I had a bad freshman year roommate just thought that, you know, because I was a college student, like there were a bunch of other college students who are also unhappy with their roommates. And there must be something that you could do, like building an e-harmony for roommates would be an amazing idea. And it was a hor- horrible, horrible idea for many reasons. But basically, like that kind of got me started into in this entrepreneurship world. And as I got more and more into it, even though that business like didn't work at all, 
we made like a thousand dollars in revenue over the lifetime of the business. And then the the one university that hired us for a thousand dollars, I lost the check that they'd sent us. And so they had to charge a $15 reissue fee. So the, the, the company's official revenue is like 985 over its lifetime. Um, but, but yeah, I mean, that, that got me started on this, on this like broader journey of figuring out how to be an entrepreneur, how to build companies, how to do all this kind of stuff. Um, which has been like very rewarding in general. Yeah. We're going to talk about, you know, the companies that you've been building over the last four years, but I, I understand at least if I'm getting it right, it's kind of foggy from doing the research, but I think you started a company that got acquired what, you know, and so maybe one way of asking the question would be talk a little bit about the first time you had a company you founded or were a part of, and it was successful. (laughs) Maybe what you learned from that experience. Yeah, yeah, totally. So after starting roommate fit, I went out to San Francisco. Um, I was working with another startup that was in the Pittsburgh area where I went to school. And when I was in SF, I met a guy that was just starting to do a roll up in like 2012, I guess this was, where he was buying different software businesses, SaaS businesses in 2012, rolling them up and, you know, building like a portfolio of these things. And so he was 36, 37. He'd been successful. He started multiple companies that had done exceptionally well. And he was basically like, Hey, do you want to come? work with me and help build this company. And so I moved out to Las Vegas to build a Las Vegas office for for what we were doing and was traveling back and forth to San Francisco. And like we acquired basically four software apps. We grew them. Uh, I think we like a little bit over doubled them in a 12-ish month period. And then at the end of that, we sold the portfolio to uh, Rackspace, which was then like a publicly traded hosting company uh, based in San Antonio. And so that was sort of my first acquisition where I'd like gotten involved with this guy, worked super hard, super closely with him. And we had taken something from, you know, granted it had a revenue base. We were acquiring companies, not building from scratch, but that was really like my first win. And it led to me moving to San Francisco as part of the acquisition. Um, you know, I made some money from that sale and it was uh, like really a tremendous outcome. Did that for you, did that give you confidence that, okay, this was achievable? You know, I'm just thinking here, here you are, you've been fired from all these jobs. You've tried something that, you know, was <laughs> successful, but not successful. You have something that's now successful. What does that change? I mean, for you, was it validation that you're on the right track? Was it like, I can do this? What, what was changing mentally? I wish that I had felt more of that. Like, I wish that I had allowed myself to be like, good job, you know, but instead I, I sort of took the opposite of you and I was like, Oh, I could never have done that by myself. Oh, I didn't do this. It wasn't really my win. We were buying businesses, not optimizing them. The market's good. Jonathan is a genius. All, all of which are true. But I, I don't think that I let myself like feel like I had earned that win or in any way, you know. And and like I probably, I, I certainly was not the main person that that pushed those companies forward. So I think that was true to an extent. Um, but I think I also could have felt a little bit better about the role that I played as opposed to like, I just like wrote it to zero. And I was like, I'm not going to feel good about myself until I have a win. And <laughs> uh, until I've started something myself, you know, totally. So I mean, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Maybe it gives you a positive chip in your shoulder in you know, to that degree of like, okay, now let me go do this on my own. I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, the companies that you've started. And what I wanted to ask was, you know, when I look at all the companies you have today, they all make sense, meaning they're all health and nutrition and wellness focused. They all, you know, focus on, uh, very specific kind of markets and use cases. They're all really well branded. Where did this all initially start? And what was the origin story of, if I'm getting it right, I think Kettle and Fire was the first one. What was the origin story, the genesis of of that first company? So when this was, when I started Kettle and Fire, it was 2015. I was doing consulting. I was like poking around for my like big tech company that I wanted to start. I was in San Francisco and was like, you know, that that's just what I thought I should be doing. And so I spent a lot of time thinking about different ideas. And one of the things that just kept coming up as I was like getting into performance optimization and nutrition and health and just like following my intellectual curiosity in that space, I came across uh, a lot of the people at my CrossFit gym were talking about how they were using bone broth for recovery to like heal their joints, gut dysfunction, skin health, all these sorts of things. Around the same time, my brother, who I ended up starting a business with, he was based in the Philly area. He had torn like pretty much everything you could tear in your knee playing soccer. He was in high school. He had gotten surgery and was like bedridden for eight weeks. And he was basically like, 
hey, you should, uh, you know, he was like, what, what can I do to help with recovery? And how can I heal faster after surgery? And I recommended he look into bone broth. There were no good quality options in the Philly region. Uh, I was myself looking for bone broth because like I was traveling, I didn't love cooking then uh, and was terrible at it. And so I was like looking for bone broth in San Francisco and there was also no good high quality versions. And so that's kind of when, you know, the idea coalesced and we were like, oh, I bet there's a demand or I bet that you could start a high quality bone broth company. We can start selling it online. And Nick, my brother, we can start this together. You don't have to go to college. We can start this business because you want to be an entrepreneur anyway. I can be, you know, use this as a way to like fund my life practically, uh, you know, as I figure out my like big tech thing. And so we decided to start what became Kettle and Fire. And we launched it in August of 2015 and just with no expectations beyond like a lifestyle business. I honestly thought it would do maybe like 10 to 15K a month in a, in a really good scenario. And it just kind of like took off on us. When did you start feeling like you were having success with it? I mean, it sounds like anecdotally, you're kind of, you're, you're getting this sense that there are a lot of people that are interested in it. It's this emerging trend. You know, you talked about, um, I think in our other interview, being good at kind of spotting these trends and being early to them. All of that's great, but there's so many businesses that you then start that don't, you know, kind of materialize or get big. What was the first moment where you and or your brother were like, okay, there's something here. This is actually working. Yeah. I mean, honestly, the first moment was, on month one, we launched and pretty much as soon as we launched, we like thought we had something like we had underwritten it as I thought it would do five to 10 K a month. And in our first month, we did like 20. Our next month, we did like 40. Our next month, we did like 60 grand or something like that. And it just kept growing. Like our, our first, we launched in August of 2015. And before the year was over, we'd done like almost 300,000 in revenue. Uh, and so for us, we were just like, well, this is, this is way beyond what we thought this would be. And this is with like, we're, we, we had a horrible brand. Uh, it wasn't called Kettle and Fire at the time. It was called Bone Broths Co. We were only selling online. Like it was $12 a box. We didn't really know how to make a good product. We only had one SKU. It was just like on almost every dimension, it was really badly done. And, um, and it was still working. And so we were like, damn, this is compelling. <laughs> what do you credit that to? And what I'm asking there is, you know, so there's so many things working against it. If you had to try to play scientist and try to point to one or two things that really moved the needle for you, do you have a sense of what those were? Yeah, I think it was mostly timing, honestly. Uh, I, I think that like our timing was spot on where we were just at the moment where people were starting to talk about bone broth. It was a product that they wanted in their lives and they were willing to pay for it. At least like, some smallish community of people that are into like paleo and whole 30 and health and all this are willing to pay for it. And we, at one, at that point when we launched, it was like, we were literally the only game in town. Like if you wanted to buy bone broth, it was like, you somehow knew about us because there were no other companies that were doing this thing. And so I think it was almost entirely timing. And like, we were the right company with the right product in a market that was growing. And like, that was, that was it. You know, I, I think that that was almost everything is we could have, we could, and, and honestly, like the reason I say that is I think we did a, there were definitely things that we could have done better. Like I just mentioned, brand sucked, cost was expensive, all this sort of stuff. We saw companies that were executing way worse than we were that were launching bone broth in like 2015, 2016 that were doing really well. Like they were doing like single digit millions in sales and they had no idea. I mean, no idea what they were doing. And so I think it was just like mostly a market thing at that time. I mean, so one of the questions I want to ask, it's, you know, it's a little, I guess, difficult to talk about. So you, you, uh, you know, you end up launching this company. It was called Bone Broths Co., which of course it was <laughs> like yeah, a generic, not super awesome name. name, but you know, it's good enough to, to be able to launch it. You've clearly evolved it massively since then. Not only have you had a skew expansion, I would say your site does a very good job of marketing it and what the benefits of bone, bone broth are in a very simple way. The branding is great. Talk a little bit about the process of taking it from this super rough thing that was working despite itself and polishing that over time. And I guess what I'd be curious is like, what have you two intentionally focused on that's really moved the needle? And then walk us through some of that. Like, I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about the branding and naming and updating that and what that looked like. 
Yeah, I mean, so as soon as we thought that we had something, we were like, oh boy, we really have to raise our game from a product standpoint, from a brand standpoint, from a marketing standpoint, all of it. And so hired a branding agency. Uh, they were like, we're going to come up with a great name for you. We, Nick and I ended up coming up with the name. We were sitting in a hot tub. We were joking about like, you know, what, what, what are like the core things, the core things that you need to make bone broth and what would you have in an ancestral environment? And like, for us, it was like, you know, a kettle and a flame, a fire. And so we were like, oh, that's kind of a cool name. Sounds sweet. We should maybe look at using that. And, uh, and that's what we went with. Can you share some of the names that you did not go with? Yeah. So <laughs> like, they wanted to go, they wanted us to go with Stocksmith was one of the names. It's not horrible, but you know, not amazing. Yeah. Uh, it was like Harper 82 Harper, which was like the address of the first butcher shop in San Francisco. Um, something like that. Granger, which would have been horrendous. Like, yeah, no way. This is very, I mean, yeah. this is very like branding agency work. It's fascinating. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so, you know, we were like fine with the branding agency. They did come up with a logo, which was amazing. Uh, and we still use an iteration of that logo today. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was basically like we had to put a lot of thought into um, what is the the vibe, the brand, the messaging, the, the look and feel that we want to convey. And in those days, our, our first Kettle and Fire brand was like black and orange and red. It was like I thought it was selling to like CrossFitters who want to drink bone broth. And the the iron law of e-commerce across everything I've ever started is like, I start a thing thinking I'm selling to people like me and it's always 45 year old women that are in, are buying the product. <laughs> That's so, always the end consumer. I just love yeah, this. <laughs> exactly. And so we, we basically had to like, over the years, have had to revamp and, and like soften our our branding, our logo, our, all that sort of stuff to make it more appealing to the average person. <laughs> I mean, it's a really interesting point, you know, and I want to talk about that just for a second, because I think uh, part of, you know, what I'm trying to think of uh, when coming up with these questions is what other direct to consumer kind of health focused founders might want to know. And that is very, very, very common starting out thinking, here's the audience, you know, you're kind of, you know, tailoring the aesthetic perfectly that way. So cl- clearly, you know, you you learn that your customer is very different than who you imagined. It's probably not a 20-year-old CrossFitter male. It ends up being, you know, to your point, a 45-year-old uh, woman. But I want to ask a, a more subtle question. And uh, because the cynical take I've heard on like what you guys have done with the brand is, oh, we need to make it more appealing for women as if women have entirely different aesthetic tastes than, than men do at the end of the day. And I think another lens you could use is just you're opening up the aperture and, and so that more people can relate to it. Is that how you guys have thought about it is there a philosophy with which you've changed the aesthetic to try to make it more relatable i I basically think that like we had a very our original aesthetic was very like black orange you know super like traditionally like something yeah i mean basically like a like a caveman home depot or some vibe like that uh we we basically just wanted to make it a little bit softer a little less appealing a little less like caveman paleo i would say uh, where the first iteration was very like, you know, kettle, fire, like broth, you know, bone, blood, all this sort of stuff. It was like a, a weird vibe and not a weird vibe. It worked at the time, but yeah, just specific. now as we've, yeah, specific. And now as we've like broadened, uh, as more people have un- understood sort of the, the health benefits of bone broth and the like, we've increased the number of people that we think our brand talks to. Now we have multiple different colors. We have much softer color palette. We have like a friendlier, more approachable font. We have sort of like a total packaging refresh, like a lot of these things that we've done. And I'm, I'm like really proud of the work that our branding team and marketing team has done with the brand and around the brand today, where I think it's like both strong, but friendly and approachable, but also like has good health kind of connotations and vibes and like, I'm, I'm, it's something I'm very proud of. Yeah, they've done a great job. So huge, huge plus one to that. One of the questions I want to ask was around distribution and how, you know, some of the decisions you made there. And I don't know if this is still the case. One of the newsletters I read, you were talking about, I mean, I don't know if this was for Kettle and Fire specifically, but you were looking initially at selling on Amazon and then you see all these crazy requirements that they had, which I didn't know about, of all these hyper-specific things you need to do perfectly in order to sell on the platform and basically getting to the conclusion of, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're just going to lean into direct-to-consumer. So talk about like I guess how much of your business is direct to consumer versus stores have you changed your approach to selling on Amazon how do you guys think about distribution yeah so when we started we were 100% direct to consumer so you could only buy from kettleandfire.com um, or then bonebrothsco.com 
Um, and so when we started, that was all of our business. As we moved on, you know, in our like second year in business, we got into 50 Whole Foods. We were still ignoring Amazon at this point, but we got into 50 Whole Foods. So like 90% of our business was direct to consumer. Our third year, you know, we got into all the Whole Foods. And so it was like, okay, we're now 70% online. Today, like our online business is about 20% of our overall mix. And we're, we're mostly a whole, a wholesale brand. And I think that with, with the concentration, like we have a focus on Amazon too. I think that that's kind of the way that brands, especially brands like ours that are selling at like sub $10 price points and are shipping something that is like boxy and heavy. Like we're shipping liquid at relatively low price points and as freight costs and ad costs and all sorts of things have gone up. I just think that's like structurally a hard business to win in. And when people are like buying broth or stock or whatever, generally they're just going to their local grocery store to buy that thing. Like it's a repeat thing. You're almost always like, oh crap, I'm out of broth or stock. I'm going to go to the store and get some. Very rarely are you in the mindset of like, I'm going to make the best soup for days from now. And so like, I need to go online and order a kettle on fire right now. No, I've never done that. (laughs) Yeah, right. And so it just like, we kind of knew from very early on that just based on the number of like cancellations of subscriptions we got where people would say like, I have too much bone broth. I never remember to buy this when I need it. Uh, I can't wait like a week for shipping, all this sort of stuff. We're like, okay, this is going to move much better when we can get into retail. And our Mm -hmm. early retail numbers, once we got into Whole Foods were exceptionally strong. And so I, that, that was also a really good like indicator that retail is where the future of the company lay and where we should be investing most of our resources. And so we've, we've basically been prioritizing uh, retail for better, for worse, but I think it's better. That makes sense. Yeah. For since uh, very early, I don't know, like 2016, 2017. I want to ask one more question and then we'll go one more question just around uh, kettle and fire. And then I want to try to loop in uh, perfect keto and talk a little bit about distribution there because the products are slightly different. But one of the things I want to ask is, you know, so you launched kettle and fire uh, in what, 2015, I get, is that the right year? Yep. Late 2015. Okay. You launched it in 2015. Clearly, you know, even not that I am like a bone broth, bone broth aficionado, but I've noticed obviously that kind of uptick in sales and people talking about it and people using it. Now you're at the point, here we are seven years later, where I know Whole Foods has a generic, you know, bone broth, and I'm sure there are other competitors you compete with. And so it's an interesting example of you guys being, you know, basically the uh, original brand in the category all the way through then scaling. And now you have competition from, you know, kind of uh, generic brands at the grocery store and other and other competitors. Has that factored into what you guys have done strategically? Is that just, do you look at that as just a reality of, you know, having something that's become more popular or just any thoughts around that? Yeah, I, th- I think it's just a reality. You know, it's like, we've seen some success, we've seen some wins and the category has gotten a lot bigger than when I started looking at it. And so I think that, you know, success attracts other companies. Like there are other companies that think that they are doing something better than us or different than us, or, you know, they see an opportunity financially, whatever it is. And and I just, I kind of think it's unavoidable. Like I do feel like we have built a, some like brand moats, some product moats, some distribution moats. Like we've spent a lot of our time not sitting fat and happy on like money that we were making, but reinvesting into the business, making a better product, making a better packaging, getting better distribution. And I'm really proud of that. And I think that it puts us in a good competitive position. But I do think there's a lot of companies that, especially in our space, where it's like, once you launch something that takes off, maybe like a kombucha or something is like a good example. You know, like 10 years ago, there was one kombucha brand. It was GT's kombucha. They did almost half a billion in revenue, something like that. Super profitable. They didn't really change anything. And now there's like 50 kombucha brands and there's more launching all the time. And it just erodes margin, erodes profits, just like a a tough, tough spot to be in, I would say. But also inevitable. 
No, it's inevitable. It's also, I think, a, an amazing point because I can't tell you, even as a venture investor, the number of companies I've seen that had early success. And you know, uh, one of the things you learn. This goes back to you know a, a point that we talked about earlier around venture investing, and it's uh, a full contact sport. You know, you never know what's going to happen. And one of the things I've seen now, multiple, multiple, multiple times, is companies who early in their life have spiked really hard and are enormously successful, but can't thread that needle and improve the product and be able to keep up and maintain the leadership position in the marketplace. Um, and a lot of it, I think, you know, honestly traces back to what you said, which is just my sense of it is they're not pushing themselves enough. They don't maintain that energy and that spirit from day one. And they just are fat and happy. Is that your take? Do you have a different point of view around why that happens so often? I think that's part of it. I also think that, man, just business stuff is hard. It's hard to get a business off the ground. It's hard to get a business that's, you know, sustainable. Then <laughs> It's hard to get a business that's like, profitable and growing. And the bigger you get, the more competitive everything gets. And it's just like at every dimension or at every stage, stuff is just really hard. I think that that's the other piece. It's like not, and not everyone is just sitting fat and happy. I just think it's man, like you, it, it is that's hard. a challenge to yeah. fight off competition every single day, to stay ahead of the trends every single day to, you know, try and focus on profitability. And I think especially especially in our world, like the brand branded consumer products world, the last seven years have also been especially hard because I think that there's been a slew of companies that have been extremely well-funded that are horrendous businesses, like just structurally broken businesses that are driving up advertising costs or taking shelf space or like doing stuff that makes it hard for you as another competitor that wants to run a good business to compete. Like if you had a you know, if you're four sigmatic or like one of these businesses that, um, that like layered superfood competes with, for example, I don't know if you know them, they're a public company. So you can talk, you can reference this as funny as that is, they are a public company. (laughs) I I know, I know. And and, and they did last year, I think they did something like they like did 18, 20 million in revenue, something like that and lost 32 million. And, you know, that's like, it came public as a SPAC, which explains a lot, but yes, it's true. Yeah. Yeah. No, completely. (laughs) Um, yeah, yeah, it was not, not a big process. Um, but I mean, it's like, how do you compete with that as a brand that wants to build a good business when another brand is lighting $32 million on fire to make $20 million in revenue? That's very hard to stay alive in an environment where your competitors are able to do stuff like that. Yeah. I want to ask a question. You know, I know you do venture investing, some angel investing, you know, even just that point is so fascinating because here you are, you know, I know you've raised venture capital for Kettle and Fire, but you've, my, my sense is culturally you've run it as it's a profitable business. You want this to be profitable and growing. So you want it to be sustainable. So in many ways you're, you know, you're raising venture capital to expand it, but you're, you have a very classical playbook, which I think is the right thing to do. That said, I imagine from your position, seeing some of this, you probably have a love hate relationship with venture capital because one one of the flaws of venture capital is it gives an enormous, to your point, there are so many examples. A great example recently has been this 24 hour or 20 minute delivery of groceries in New York is I think a fascinating example of just like hundreds of millions of dollars lit on fire for companies that are not going to be around anymore because it was never a sustainable business. And yet venture capital funded it. Do you have a love hate relationship with venture capital? How do you think, or is that just a flaw it's in the model? And is it what it is what it is? Yeah. I mean, look, I, I don't actually think it's a flaw in the model. I think it's like, I think it's a beautiful thing in some ways that people can allocate risk capital and like trying to build amazing, cool things that if they worked, like there's a huge payoff. Like, I, I think that th- there, there should probably like on the overall th- sphere of like how we allocate money as a, as an economy, we should probably put more money into like likely to fail, but if it works, boy, will that be transformative for society type projects. And I think venture capital does a really good job of that. That said, though, I think that the problem or a problem in venture is that people use venture capital to describe venture investing in small companies across sectors, which I think is kind of crazy. Like in when it comes to consumer, people will say like venture capital invests in, uh, you know, when, when it comes to consumer products like Kettle and Fire, Perfect Keto and the like, we saw companies the last six years that were raising at same valuations in a in a seed or pre-seed stage, aka like they don't have any traction stage as tech companies. And yet if you're a tech company, your market size for like many different types of tech companies is 
almost like two, three, four orders of magnitude more than a consumer brand. And yet, if you're starting out at the same playing field, like it makes no sense that a pre-seed, no traction, like, I don't know, uh, raisin brand competitor, you know, is raising at a $10 million valuation when that is likely to require a lot more capital, be structurally a worse business than like a 90% plus profit technology business and an amazing exit for like almost any brand in, in consumer is like north or sorry, south of like $300 million. Like there are not that many exits. You can look over the last decade that have gone for more than $300 million. And so I think that tech is different. Like you get an Uber, an Airbnb, a DoorDash, like every single cycle in tech, like every year, multiple multi-billion dollar companies go public that are in the technology space. Like I think that the venture math pencils out when it comes to technology. I think that in consumer people have to be much more disciplined and much more valuation sensitive. And I think that for the last seven years, they really haven't been. And I think that that, that has made it like harder. It's made it hard to invest in consumer brands for me personally, but I think it's made it harder as like a operator of a consumer brand too, where you have had venture, you know, investors that haven't agreed with everything that I just said. And so they're throwing money at money losing brands that, don't have any plan to be sustainable and like structurally are not able to either be sustainable at their current cost structure or may not even be able to survive at all outside of investor dollars. Yeah. I mean, so well said. I'm, I'm, that's definitely going to be a clip that we will extract because I think in a couple of minutes, you've made an incredibly compelling point. You know, what? just the the one thing I was going to add on to that is one of the thoughts I've always had is, uh, you know, somewhat similarly is I've met with hundreds and hundreds of hundreds of founders now. And over time, you start to really get a sense for just the number of founders that are looking to raise venture capital that honestly are not running a venture scale business. And you can start to identify that mismatch. But I feel like that's one of the I don't know. Like once you spot that, you see it everywhere. And I think what I mean by that is exactly what you're saying. Like, yes, you can raise venture capital or you can raise money from other people and you can call it venture capital. But if you don't have a venture scale business, one, you shouldn't be signing up because you actually can't generate the return profile. It's not gonna be fun for you. It's not gonna be fun for your investors. But also just, yeah, I think to your point, it's like uh, getting way too loose with the term as opposed to trying to be precise with it and more (laughs) prescriptive about what it is. (laughs) Yeah, completely. I mean, I think that it sucks. It sucks when a startup raises venture and they're not a venture scale company. It like sucks for the investor who doesn't have a way to get their money out um, and, or loses it. Uh, it sucks for the founder who it sucks a, most for the founder. <laughs> like they're just going to disappoint everybody constantly. Totally. And, and in a best case scenario, you're running a company that your investors want to return, but you're unable to sell to generate the return they want. And it's profitable. And so it's like, what do you do? Do you just run this thing for 5, 10, 15, 20 years? Like, what do you actually do? It's kind of tough. And I think that probably there's going to be a lot of founders over the next like five years that find themselves in this position where they have to decide, do I step away from a profitable business where I raise venture? Do I try and sell it even at a discount? Because like, I want to do something else. Do I keep running this indefinitely to try and like get my investors a payback? It's yeah. Do I tell them I'm going to now pay them in dividends and I'm not going to, it's not going to be a sale or a liquidity event or whatever it is because that's not going to happen. Yeah. It's like, I, I think there, I think there does need to be more uh, innovation in terms of how companies can reach a final state after, after raising venture. I, I want to ask uh, a total, a totally different question. And then I want to talk about the kind of origin of perfect keto and Shirley. So you talked about all the things that have gone well, for the most part, you've brought up quite a few things that, you know, haven't necessarily with kettle and fire, but for the most part, it seems like it's done enormously well on the flip side. What have been the biggest low lights, misses and mistakes? What have been the painful lessons that you feel like you've learned for kettle and fire? Yeah. Uh, we've had a lot. Okay. We've had a lot on the hiring side, notably, there was a long period of time, multiple years, two and a half years, probably three years, where I didn't think that a finance team was important. And so we didn't have a finance team. We didn't do any cash projections. We didn't know our numbers really that well. We didn't have billing collections. We didn't have anything. And so when I finally had an advisor knock some sense into me, he had a bookkeeping team that he knew well, dig into our books. And I was like, fine, whatever, we can do this. I don't think this is necessary. I think this is stupid. And we get on the phone call and he's like, so you realize that you have 
$800,000 that different customers owe you that they've just not paid you and you've sent them product. And we were like a tiny company at that point. And I was like, I didn't, <laughs> like I had no idea. Collections are a thing. I haven't been thinking about that at all. And at various points in, you know, not appreciating finance meant that we didn't have like all of consumer specifically is a cash flow management business. And we didn't have our handle on that. And so that almost killed the company like probably twice. And that was entirely due to me massively undervaluing the finance function in a way that was like so unbelievably stupid. So that was a big one. Another big one was just like, it's been beaten into my head multiple times to hire domain experts. Like we were building our own production line at one point, uh, shortly after we raised money. And we had like, not really a domain expert, but someone who like said that they knew what they were talking about, who was managing that build out. And basically like, as we dug in, it turned out he wasn't. And we ended up burning an extra like almost $2 million that we didn't have to burn just because like the line wasn't ready in time. You know, we'd made investments thinking it would be, we had to like hire a second engineering group, fix the first one. It was just like this mess. And so that was a, that was a really big, like learning lesson for me is like trust, but verify and also make sure that you're trusting someone when it comes to a, this is a super important task that we cannot get wrong. And that requires a lot of domain expertise, hire someone with domain expertise. Like don't try and pass it out. You don't win any points for like passing it off to someone who's never done this before. Yeah. I mean, the other point that I've heard on that same note is when you're looking for a domain expert, look for someone that's done exactly what you're looking to have done, ideally at a higher level. And then you're bringing them kind of down market as opposed to what a lot of people do, which is they're trying to swing for the fences, make a bet on someone that could potentially do it, but hasn't done it before. And I don't know, the number of times I've heard that raised as, as well too is interesting. I'll ask one more question about the, the finance piece, um, because I imagine that you are not alone at all of thinking as finance as this non-strategic thing. So clearly one example of why finance is important is knowing how much money you're owed and doing collections. I imagine there are many other things like you talked about cash flow management, obviously having projections would be enormously helpful for someone listening. That's in that boat where you were, you know, or just maybe you're talking to yourself from a few years ago. How, what, what other things would you point to as why finance is very important to invest in early on? It's everything. It's like planning. How do you make budgets? How do you make investment decisions? How do you plan? How do you decide like where to allocate resources across the company? It, it's all the way from that to like running scenario analyses to for us, like margin improvement is a big thing. Like how do you make the decision between, uh, you know, are we going to invest in X source for organic carrots or are we going to invest in like an organic carrot mash blend from another supplier or something like this? Like you just, you just have this matrix of decisions that you make every day, every week, every year as part of a company. And I think finance like gives you the tools and the ability to actually make those decisions in a way that's intelligent versus just like guessing. And for so long, we were just guessing and we didn't have a rigorous plan. We didn't have a rigorous, like any, like any sort of model that we were operating off of. We didn't have any rigor around how we were making decisions. And I think that finance like really provides that strategic lens and that, that, that sort of way of thinking about where and how you should invest your limited resources. Very, very, very well said. And I would just say, I feel like finance could maybe be a, um, I don't know, could, could maybe mean rigor. It's it's a great way of adding. I feel like anytime finance is involved, the, the bar for rigor goes way, way, way up in any discussion that you're having because <laughs> there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to hide. You have to have a real conversation. I kind of think that we're moving into a, in startup land, like we're moving towards an environment where we have been valuing like the builders, the technologists, like the marketers and all this sort of stuff really highly the last like 10 to 20 years. And I think that if, if, and as money gets tighter, as investments slow down, I think that like really good operators and finance people are going to be unbelievably valuable in this next cycle. As like, if you're a company that can even eke out like one to two more margin points and you can use that to invest in better people marketing, sales, whatever, like it kicks off this feedback loop that will allow you to like slowly outcompete a bunch of your competitors. And I think that, I think that that's something that we're going to start seeing a lot more of is like finance as a competitive advantage. 
Totally. And, and just people focused on compounding and, you know, taking, realizing that even a couple of percentages compounded over days and weeks and months and years adds up to a massive, massive changes over time. So we've talked now a lot about kettle and fire. We've talked about some of the low lights, some of the mistakes. I want to now talk about Perfect Keto and Shirley. And these are just two of a couple of the things you founded. Talk a little bit about why you founded those and maybe what you did better or differently or what you learned from kettle and fire that informed the approach there. <laughs> yeah. So unfortunately I started Kettle on Fire and then I started Perfect Keto like 18 months later. And so a lot of these lessons that a lot of these things that I'm talking about that were lessons from Kettle on Fire, I felt like I learned or got hammered home at the same time at Perfect Keto. God, you learned them twice. <laughs> yeah. But at the same time, it was horrible. Like around the same time I learned that we should have a finance team at Kettle on Fire. It was becoming blindingly obvious that we should have a finance team at Perfect Keto. Just brutal. And so both of these lessons got pounded very hard in my head. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that we learned a lot about how to operate a business generally, how to hire, um, train, build culture, innovate, think about products, think about market sizing, think about where to invest resources. And I think that I feel very fortunate that I was able to like look at two businesses at roughly the same time and like extract learnings from each of them and then apply some of those learnings to to the other one, that was a really, really valuable, valuable thing. And I think coming out of that, like, I felt very comfortable when we started Shirley, feeling like this is much more of a, like, I, I felt like we identified a trend, we did a better job on the branding up front, we kind of were more thoughtful about distribution and marketing and team and like all these sorts of things than certainly than we were in the early days of Kettle and Fire, we and, and Perfect Keto. We made a finance hire as one of our first 10 hires. Uh, you know, the, the CEO, my co-founder at Shirley is doing an incredible job. He was um, the, the president at Perfect Keto and like has a finance background. And so I feel like a lot of the learnings that I had from Kettle and Fire and Perfect Keto sort of surely got the brunt of those. And I kind of learned bad, you know, lessons uh, across both KNF and Perfect Keto at the same time. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's like maybe, maybe Shirley, uh, yeah, maybe Shirley has tailwinds as opposed to the other businesses having headwinds. And, you know, it's a nice thing to have. It's a nice thing to be set up for success and have an idea of what you're doing from day one. I, I want to close by talking about a couple of the things that you cover in your newsletter. We will link to this in the show notes. Uh, I'm a huge fan, uh, you know, just going through a couple of the things that you've, uh, you know, printing them out, going through them and reading them to kind of prepare for this. I think your newsletter is awesome. One of the things you talk about inside there uh, that I really love just because you got very specific with it and you have a unique approach I haven't heard other people share is your annual review and goal setting process. And, uh, you know, I, I think this started in 2012 or 2015. It's been quite a number of years that you've done this and you have a unique approach. I don't want to give it away. Can you talk a little bit about why you do the annual review, maybe what that looks like? And then I thought your process for how you set goals was also really interesting. Just touch on those. Yeah. So I, I use sort of like, I've gone through a couple iterations of an annual review, but the one that works for me now is sort of like taking a couple of days at the end of each year and just taking stock of like what went well for me this last year. Like I have some metrics that I track, like, you know, net worth generally at a high level, some relationship health stuff, like certain lifts, body weight, just, just some like high level metrics, uh, amount donated charity and the like. And then there are so like i have a metrics driven piece then i have this like more subjective like what were my favorite moments of this past year like looking at my calendar what brought me a ton of joy and then i kind of like do a full calendar review and i go what brought me joy what was like a total waste of time that i wish i hadn't done and how can i get more of the things that brought me joy in the next year and make sure and create a list of like absolutely do not do not do this list of things for future years and so one of those things that I realized a couple of years ago, just to give you an example, is that I really don't enjoy going to big conferences. Like I love going to small, less than 50 person events, big conference. I like get drained. I don't enjoy it. I don't meet that many people. It's like not my thing. And so moving in this year, it was like, great, I'm not going to go to any big conferences and I'm going to feel totally comfortable saying no to a bunch of these things. And that's made me slightly happier, <laughs> you know? Um, so I do that. And then the, and then I kind of like move into a goal setting period where once I have a sense of what did I enjoy last year? What went well for me? What do I want to start? What do I want to stop? What do I want to continue moving into this coming year? 
Then I kind of have this, this goal setting process, look at goals that I set last year. How did I do on them? And I think about goals in a couple areas. It's like randomly this, this tweet that Naval sent like a couple of years ago has just been like lodged in my head for, since I read it, which is just, uh, it's like a fit body, a calm mind and a house full of love. Like these things cannot be bought. They can only be earned. And that's actually the framework that I use for setting my annual goals, which is like, what are my physical, like body goals? What are my kind of like mental, emotional, spiritual goals? Uh, what are my relationship goals with, you know, my fiance, my friends, my family and the like. Uh, and then I have a business category and I just kind of go through and I say like, what are the things that are important to me and goals that I want to accomplish this, this year, uh, in each of those categories and then write them down. And every month throughout the year on one of the first, you know, I have, I should do my annual review uh, or my goal check-in at some point this week, it's early October. I basically sit down and I look at like, how am I doing from a goal standpoint? What do I need to do, change, adjust, tweak to make sure that I'm achieving my goals? And it gives me a really nice sense of like progress and just that generally tends to out. I, I think that like staying on task and give me a sense of like, what is this broader thing I'm working towards is really helpful for me as a, I don't know, as a type of neurotic person that does these sorts of exercises. Uh, I really get a lot out of it. Yeah, it's incredibly important. And my experience with that too is, you know, and you're in a position where you know have multiple businesses, you have a lot that you're doing. I think the more things you have in motion, the more valuable that time to pause and reflect and actually think deeply about these things and, you know, turn those dials is is really, really, really important. We'll link to that newsletter in the show notes. Um, you did a great job of outlining it, but for anyone that wants to learn more, we will link to the newsletter that's in. I've got, you know, like literally probably 15 other questions I want to ask you. So I'm going to have to pick one because we're, we're close on time and this can be our closing question. Um, but one of the, and this it's less of a question, maybe more of a topic. One of the things I loved in one of your newsletters is you talk about extreme people have extreme outcomes, which is something I have seen. It's really resonated with me, but you go even deeper than that. And you talk about why that's the case. And one of the points that you make is I want to, we're going to talk about why extreme people have extreme outcomes and why that's generally a, you know, a positive thing. But one of the things you talk about is that, you know, because this is true, it's why you don't appreciate some of the criticisms of founders and artists. You know, it makes me think of Kanye, it makes Elon Musk, you know, you can go down the list of like high profile people that have achieved a lot that are just, you know, quite different, you know, but, and so it's people that they're getting criticism for maybe being eccentric or, or just how differently they are being extreme and yet they've achieved incredible things. Talk a little bit about why that is special and significant to you and why being an extreme person is a good thing or can be a good thing. Yeah, I think that basically the the way that people tend to think about things is, oh, that's an interesting extreme result. Like LeBron James, wow, what an incredible extreme outlier. And yet they don't think about what it took for LeBron to become LeBron. Like I'm sure that his friends, his mom are probably extremely well-meaning and at some point or another have been like, LeBron, why don't you come to dinner with me and stop playing basketball? You know what I mean? Or like, Kanye, why don't you get out of your room and like stop composing music or whatever it is? And I think that people don't understand how or don't appreciate that extreme outliers, extreme results come from making distinctly different choices than like the average person. And I just wish that like I want to live in a world that has way more human creativity, way more human flourishing, way more people like being themselves, doing their weird thing, like getting into whatever weird thing that people are, people are into and like getting into it a hundred percent. And I think that so many people are like, have this social pressure sort of like norm where people expect that Kanye can be Kanye and then just be a totally normal house guest. You know what I mean? Whereas I want to remove that expectation and like allow people to feel like, Hey, I'm going to do this, this thing that it's exciting to me. That's unique to me. That, that that's weird for me. And I'm also going to surrender the expectation that I'm going to be normal and understandable and like perfectly like understood and normal to everyone around me in my life. I just think that those two things are like fundamentally incompatible. And I wish that more people would realize that if you are going to do something amazing, great, try and do something out there that no one's done before, uh, or even just like try and improve yourself 10%, 20%, whatever people are, you just have to accept that for whatever reason, other humans are going to tell you to 
chill out, slow down, don't try so hard, that's weird, whatever it is. Uh, and I wish that people would just be okay and internalize that if I'm going to try and start this company, if I'm going to try and be an outlier and become super wealthy, super great technologist, super great musician, I have to accept that like what comes with that is a lot of amazing things and a lot of like conversations where people are like, why are you doing that weird thing? <laughs> you know what I mean? Totally. Or just, I think a lot of feeling judged and, uh, and, and, you know, to that point as well, too, I think being different. And one of the things I wanted to talk about that is one of the things I wanted to kind of do as a follow-up to that was talk a little bit about steps to become an extreme person, because, you know, like it reminded me, or at least it related at least to you also. And I think this was maybe part of the story of this idea of extreme people have extreme outcomes. You know, it sounds like some of this came from this two week paleo experiment you had in college doing basically doing paleo before anyone really knew what paleo was and people being like, what the hell are you doing? Um, and so one of the things I wanted to just kind of ask you is what are the steps to become an extreme person? And it sounds maybe like a stupid question, but what I mean by that is I believe there are quite a few people listening that will buy into that. And yet the next thing is, what does it mean for me to open up to and accept extreme people and become an extreme person myself? Any yeah. thoughts on that? Yeah. So when I was in college and, and I will answer this question, I promise. But when I was in college, I remember I went paleo for two weeks and all of my friends, like as a college student, at least where I was in Pittsburgh in 2011, we're like, wait, you're not drinking beer. You're not eating pizza. You're not like eating fresh. Like what is wrong with you? You know? And at the time I, what I did is what I would the absolute opposite of what I recommend doing, which is I would shrug it off and I'd be like, Oh, you know, it's, I, I'm not really into this pillow thing. It's just like something I'm trying. Uh, I'm not feeling well. I don't want to eat it. I like didn't fully own that. I'm trying a weird thing as an experiment because I'm interested in it. And I think that as a way to practice being okay with becoming a more extreme, strange, out there, more fully expressed person, I think that figuring out how to own the things and the decisions and the choices that you're making, whether they're good, bad, weird, whatever it is, I think is a really good step to practicing and being more okay with being weird. Like if you can just say like, someone goes, why aren't you drinking beer? And you don't have to make up an excuse that's not true. And you just go, I read a thing that said beer is bad for you. I'm trying it for two weeks. We're going to see how it goes. And you just sit with full acceptance of that's your decision and that's your choice. I think that like that is the, the, the best sort of practice that you can do is starting to internalize and be okay with your choices. And then slowly as you build up the understanding and confidence that comes with internalizing and owning your choices, I think you become more and more okay being weird, being out there, being different. Yeah, you can try really weird stuff. Then you could be Elon Musk and Grimes having babies that have just crazy, crazy, totally. crazy names. You know, <laughs> this, this totally. infinite possibilities. Yeah, completely. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's no, I love I love that story. I love the point you made in uh, the newsletter. And I, you know, I agree with you. I think the world would be a better place if there were more extreme weird out there people just being open with trying stuff and being more intellectually honest and being less afraid of judgment. Um this has been so much fun, Justin. We have gone all over the map uh, and talked about a bunch of stuff. Um, I've really enjoyed our time together. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. You can follow Justin Mares on Twitter at JW Mares, and you can learn more about Kettle and Fire at kettleandfire.com. You can find a searchable transcript of this episode, as well as our episode guide with ways to dive deeper at outlieracademy.com slash 144. That's outlieracademy.com slash 144. For more from Outlier Academy, follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, or TikTok. Subscribe to our free weekly newsletter at cheatsheetnewsletter.com. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash outlieracademy, where we share all of our video interviews, as well as our favorite clips from every single episode, including this one, or visit outlieracademy.com for more incredible outlier founder episodes, profiling incredible companies like Forward, Eight Sleep, Common Stock, Varda Space Industries, Superhuman, Primal Kitchen, 1-800-GOT-JUNK, and many, many more. In every episode, we deconstruct the ideas, frameworks, and strategies they use to build these incredible companies. We'll see you right here with a brand new episode of Outlier Academy next Wednesday.